Romans chapter 2, we'll start in verse 12. And, and verse 12 is, is kind of the topic verse for this section. Okay, so I'm going to start with that statement, and then the rest of it will kind of just be uh, putting some flesh on that principle. In fa- fact, verse 12 really bridges right off of verse 11 about God's impartiality in judging people. And then verse 12 is going to tell us what that looks like. So in verse 12, we start with this. It says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Now, to understand what Paul's talking about here, he's using terms that would have been uh, familiar to them at that time. When he's using the law particularly here, he's talking about God's word, the, the Jewish law that the people had. You might say the Old Testament or specific sections of it were referred to as the law, but is also used generically to refer to their Bible, the law that God had given them, that special revelation that they had. So his statement, in a sense, if we were to contextualize it today, he would say something that all who have sinned without the Bible or God's word will perish without God's word meaning they're not going to be judged by God's word as a standard for them if they've never seen it or they've avoided it or just never you know, engaged in it. But he says they're going to perish, they'll be judged, and they'll perish even apart from that. And we'll talk about what that looks like. Paul's going to address that. But all who have sinned under the law, meaning knowing having God's Bible and this truth, and who sinned under it, will be judged by these standards. Okay, so that's Paul's first picture, is that God's going to be impartial in how he judges. So here's my first truth for you, is I will be objectively judged according to my obedience to the truth I possess. That's how God is going to judge the world in a general statement. Those who have never seen these truths will be judged by what they have known. They'll be a judge apart from these general truths and, and, or these specific truths that he's given us. And those that have them, this is going to be our standard of those who are in it. Okay, so that's the big picture here. So now we're going to get into what it looks like if you don't have these truths. And Paul's going to address that in the first section here, uh, verses 13 through 16. So follow along with me as we read here, and I'll I'll look at some of the principles that he talks to us about in here. So he says this, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. So simply hearing this truth doesn't make us righteous, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Then he goes on to describe uh, the non-believers or Gentiles as they would have referred to them then. The Jewish people were the religious ones that had the law. Gentiles were considered those who didn't. That's how they would have categorized people at that time. So for when Gentiles or unbelievers who do not have the law, meaning this truth, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. So Paul's saying in this sense that, hey, sometimes people who don't even know God's specific truth they act according to the, some of the truths in this principle, even though they don't have it. So they, that's a law unto themselves, and they, and they do it. They condemn those who have it and don't do it. So Paul's kind of addressing this issue that often happens with religious people, and even Christians, is that we tend to think of ourselves as superior to those who don't know or don't have what we have. And, and Paul's confronting that, saying, we are no more deserving of God's grace than the person whom we would li- maybe look at that's way out in the middle of nowhere, you know, doing all these pagan practices, even like Paul d- addressed in, in chapter 1. We think that we have some special place and God saved us because of who we are, and Paul's saying, no, that's not how it works. 
In fact, he's going to turn the tables on us in this passage to say we are held to a greater standard than even those who are separated from the truth. He's addressing uh, an attitude in us as Christians that's so prevalent in our human nature of being judgmental towards others and thinking that we are better than we are because of how we find people whom we perceive to be as worse than us. It's that human nature that we have in us to do that. So he's using this as an example. He's going to talk about what that means then. Look what he says. He says, they show, meaning the Gentiles, these people apart from God's specific law or don't have the Bible, he says they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, meaning this idea of what the law shows us, right and wrong. Paul is saying, hey, even people have never seen this, when they act in such a way that it reveals some of this, they show that that work of that law is written on their hearts, meaning it's stamped in who they are. And he says, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. He's talking about their conscience. Our conscience is that thing that, that whatever our right and wrong system is inside us, Paul's saying here that God has designed all humans in creation to have a sense of right and wrong. It's part of what he's stamped in our hearts. Now it's broken. It doesn't function the way it should, be, especially if it doesn't have God's written truth to kind of correct it and shape it. But what he's saying is that even if you've never come across God's word, there's a part that God's created in his image of, the hum, of human beings, even in his brokenness, that knows there's right and wrong. Unlike anything else in creation, the animals don't have that. Animals operate off of instinct. Humans have the ability to choose once they know something is right or wrong, even if it's broken, am I going to do that or am I not going to do that? Paul's talking about that here. And we're going to talk about what that looks like. He says, that, and our conscience judges of that. Even people who aren't Christians and, and have their own standard, they get convicted. Everyone can say they felt guilty at some point for doing something they knew they shouldn't do or not doing something they knew they should do. There's not a human being in the world that's ever not felt that way. And what Paul's saying is that that's this concept of what God stamped in every single human being. It's warped, but it's present there. God wired it into each of us. And he says their uh, conscience uh, accuses or excuses them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So here's my second point for you in, this, in terms of, of being apart from the law. If you don't have this truth, if I do not possess God's word, I will be judged by God's natural law. I'll be judged by God's natural law. Now we saw that uh, in an external way in chapter 1 with people who are totally separated from it. And, God, and Paul said that, that even God's creation reveals his divine nature and his infinite power. And he says that uh, a proper, the only proper response to that is to humbly say there has to be some being in this universe that's divine, that's, that's outside of my human created nature and that's infinitely powerful compared to my finite power. That's the only natural way to respond to the unbelievable intricacy of our universe. And Paul's saying that we don't even do that. We'll reject it. We'll find ways to explain away the fingerprints of God all over this universe and even create theories that eliminate God altogether but are totally inconsistent with how we often live our lives. See, when you create a theory, like theories that just say, hey, everything came about by chance, 
If that's your theory, you have to live according to it if that's what you really believe. But no one lives consistent with that. Do you know what people do that believe there's absolutely zero purpose in life, that everything was just chance? If you talk to a person that really holds that view, you're talking to a person who is suicidal. When people believe there is absolutely no purpose, when they really believe that and they live consistently with it, they will end up taking their lives. They believe there's no hope and there's absolutely no purpose for them. So even if you go in that direction, you have to live your life totally inconsistent with what you say you believe to be true. God's showing us. That's that natural revelation. Now he's talking about an internal natural revelation. Thing. Even in our own hearts, God has stamped in us the idea of right and wrong. Some kind of a moral compass, as broken as it is, that reveals the fact that some things are right and some things are wrong. And even our conscience convicts us of that. Now, we may have a wrong, our scale may be out of whack, but the fact is we all have it. And it shows up when someone does something to us that causes us harm. As soon as that happens, we immediately respond in such a way that says, that was wrong, don't we? Doesn't matter how immoral you are, doesn't matter how much you hate God or the concept of God or right or wrong, as soon as someone does something that you internally know is wrong for them to do, they take something of yours or they kill something that belongs to you. They try to murder you. Everyone knows that has that sense that, hey, that's not wrong. That's an injustice because it's stamped in us as human beings. You don't see that in the animal world. You don't see lions setting up court to, to judge another lion for going and killing that gazelle that it was eating. But we do that as human beings because it's part of our internal revelation that God's put in us. Now, if, let's say you reject God altogether. What Paul's saying is that, look, even your conscience judges you. Here's a great illustration that Francis Schaeffer, a theologian, uh, wrote about this passage that really captures it. It's a fanciful illustration, but bear with me. He's trying to communicate a point here about judgment and how sometimes we avoid God because we think we want to avoid judgment. So what Francis Schaeffer said, he said, okay, let's say you don't believe in a God and you, you, know, you have your own standard. You want to do things your own way and, and you don't believe this God is just some oppressive thing that people created to put standards on you. He, he uses this illustration. He said, let's pretend every single human being, the moment they were born, God strapped a, a little invisible recorder around their neck. And this recorder isn't just invisible. It can't be felt. It's infinitely light. And you don't even know that it's there. And this recorder operates in such a way that the moment you think or say anything that, it, that expects some kind of standard of another person, that recorder records it. So if someone does something to you that's wrong, you say, you know, you shouldn't do that. Or, you, you shouldn't cut in front of me on McPherson on the way to church. Any, anything you ever say about your standards for someone else and how they look or how they act or however, it gets recorded on this little recorder. Not God's standards, just your standards. And so when you die, you show up then there at God and, and you're standing before God in judgment. And first of all, you're going, wait a minute, I didn't realize there's a God. I don't want to stand before God. So you're surprised already that there is a God and you're there being standard. But God's saying, hey, hey, it's okay. You know, don't be afraid. I, I'm not going to judge you on my standard at all. And you go, all right, that's okay. He says, I'm just going to judge you on, on your standard. So you're thinking, okay, that sounds a little better. And then he reaches out and he pulls this little invisible recorder off your neck, which, uh, again, surprises you. You're going, I didn't know I had that on me. He says, oh, it was there. But it's just a measure 
your law, your truth. And we're going to play that recorder. You're going to play it. You just push play on there. And whatever your standards were for life, that's what we're going to use to evaluate you. How well do you think you do? In fact, how do you, well do you think any human being who's ever lived would do, even if they were judged by their own standards? That's a little bit of what God's talking to us here. Even if you are apart from his revealed law, even if you say, hey, I'm going to work with this law, my law, my internal law, even if you were to measure yourself on your own standard, you still wouldn't measure up. You still fall short. In fact, a lot of what we see in our modern society today, this idea or this argument over whether truth is absolute or it's relative, you know, we grew up in a society, a postmodern society now that believes in all truth being relative. But just the fact that we even, even consider that reveals exactly what Paul's talking about here. Because first, to believe that a statement that all truth is relative violates the statement itself. Because you're believing in an absolute truth. Your absolute truth is that all truth is relative. You can't make a statement like that and then believe it and not violate the statement in and of itself. It just reveals the brokenness of ourselves apart from God. So that's the first case Paul makes here, is that even uh, if we're apart from God's word, he's still going to judge us on a perfect standard, and it could be even our standard, and, and even then we stand condemned. So now we turn to us, guys, because right now, as Paul's kind of doing this, what's happening is us religious people are going, yeah, those pagans, they're condemned. Those people who are moralistic and civilized and think they have their own standards, they're condemned. We're looking so much better, aren't we? And now Paul turns the table and he says, okay, now let's look at you that have God's word, and let's address you a little bit. And so, starting in verse 12, I'm going to reread, reread verse 12 again because it's the topic sentence for all of it. Remember, he says, For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So now the second half of this passage is dealing with that part that's underlined. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Now, Paul's addressing, in particular, the Jewish people and uh, here because they had the law, but I'm going to contextualize it to now in, in saying that we're God's people now that have his truth, have the Bible, his word. And so I'm using that as the context for how we respond to this kind of truth. And he says this in verse 17. Two common ways we're going to see in this section. Let me overview that first. Two ways that Paul's going to address that we wrongly justify ourselves as people who possess God's word, okay? You're going to see one in terms of knowledge of his word and one in terms of actions that we pursue that here. But two ways in which we wrongly justify ourselves. He says this in verse 17. If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? 
You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Here's what Paul does. He, he turns the table on our human nature that loves to grade on a curve. And when we grade on a curve, the interesting thing is our human nature is uh, always seems to put ourselves just above the curve, don't we? Christians are some of the, the best at that. And what Paul's not saying here is that he's not making an experience an excuse that, hey, you know, since we're all sinners, we shouldn't address sin at all. That's not what he's saying here. He's talking about the broad sweeping idea of judgment. Who deserves to be saved and who deserves to be judged? He talks about how we treat each other and how we confront sin in other passages uh, as the body. But here he's talking about the big broad sweeping picture of who deserves to be saved. And what he's revealing here really quickly is that none of us do. Even us who have God's word, even us who have heard it, even us who can quote it, that does nothing to save us. In fact, all it does is remind us of how desperate we really are because we know about these things and yet we still do them. We can say, well, yeah, all these people in our, in our city, they commit adultery all the time. They steal, they're lying, cheaters, they're thieves. Well, you know what? They, they aren't being judged by this. They don't have this. They haven't even read it, most of them. So, yeah, that's, that's already the case for them. The problem is we know these things, and we still do it. Now, we may not do it as much as they do, but the fact is, they aren't even looking at this. They don't even, they're, you're, they're using their own measures. God's looking at us. We have this. Why do we still do it? You say, come on, Chad, I don't steal. I've never committed adultery. Well, really? Maybe you've never stole anything that what you perceive is, is bigger or on your scale is, is bad. But let me ask you this. Have you ever taken something from your employee or used something of your employees or not put in the time that you said you put in for your employee and yet still been compensated for it? Have you ever borrowed something that was your employee's and it ended up at your home? Have you ever borrowed your neighbor's answers in school saying, oh, it's not a big deal. I'm just, I'm just going to you know, boost my grade a little bit by getting stuff from his assignment. That's stealing. That's taking something that belongs to someone else. And you and I know better. I know, Miss, you maybe say, I've never committed adultery, really. You know what Jesus said when he talked about adultery? He said, if anyone even looks at a person of the opposite sex with desire in their hearts, someone who's not their spouse, they have committed adultery. Raise your hand if you've never, ever looked at someone of the opposite sex with sexual desire in your heart that wasn't your spouse. Paul's making his case. You can work down every single one of these truths, and the fact that we possess these truths in no way changes the fact that our nature is just as broken as those who are far from it. Paul's making his argument, and he's turning the tables on us. This is so important that we understand this truth. Because what you're going to see and what we need to see is our readiness to condemn sinfulness in other people 
is usually a cover-up of our own spiritual pridefulness, of our own thought that, that Paul's trying to address here, that we deserve to be saved. We're a little bit better. We're a little bit cleaner. We, know we, we were born into a little bit better family or in a different culture or a better, better society. Whatever we want to put on there, we tend to think that we somehow deserve what God gives us in Christ Jesus. You see, the tendency to excuse in ourselves the sins that we are quick to condemn in others is a common human fault that must be rooted out in us as Christians. Church, that's why this beginning of this book is so important. It's why, unfortunately, it's been overlooked, this principle in the modern church today. We don't like to talk about sin. Let's just talk about our victory. Let's just talk about all these good things, all of which is important, all of which is true, but it's only part of the truth. When all you talk about is victory, when all you talk about is blessing, when all you talk about the good things, then you tend to begin to believe that you really deserve those things. You miss the point of grace. Just like when we as parents just give good stuff to our kids. I mean, any parent knows when you just continue to give your kid everything that they want, do they become more kind and more respectful to you? You're laughing because you know what happens. They become spoiled. They become expecting more. They become worse because they think that they deserve that stuff. God balances that by showing us who we are and what he's done for us, and that brings a humility that allows us to walk with him properly. Matthew 7 said it really well when Jesus talked about this idea. And and again, I want to emphasize, just because we have to recognize our own brokenness, I'm not saying that this excuses us and, and says, oh, we should never bring up sin in anyone else's life. That's not what I'm saying. Matthew 7, and Jesus said this very clearly. He says, let the person who has a log in his own eye first take that log out before you take the speck out of your brother's eye. He was using an exaggeration for, for our nature, is that we have a tendency to find all the specks in everyone else's issues in their lives while all along we're walking along with a big old log in our eye. Notice what Jesus doesn't say in that passage. He doesn't say, hey, just deal with the log in your own eye and let them deal with the speck in their own. No, he says, you take first the log out of your own eye. And if you've ever done that, if you've ever sat and taken the time to really address your own sinfulness and how tender it is to have that thing taken out of your life and to be addressed in your life over and over again, one thing that will be true of you is you will be one of the most gentle people whoever came along to take the speck out of the eye of another. But see, we like to take it out and whack the people across the head and then stick it right back in our own eye. And Paul's saying, that's not how it's supposed to work as Christians. Second thing we see is is simply, I'm not safe by, did I give you that? I may not have. I'm not safe by simply knowing God's truth. That's my next point. I've been missing these all day long, so just bear with me. I'm not safe by simply knowing God's truth. That's what Paul's saying. Just because we have it, just because we hear it, just because we have Bibles in our home, that doesn't make you safe in God's judgment. In fact, it's worse for you if that's all you do, is just think that putting these things around and knowing these truths makes you better than someone else. Instead, it raises a standard for how you're going to be judged. Second thing we see in this 
passage is, is another common error that we make as Christians or as believers or people that have God's truth. And Paul addresses it in, chapter, in verse 25 and following. He says this, For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? I know he's kind of losing you with all this circumcision. I'm going to explain it in just a minute, all right? Trust me, we're not going to do any circumcisions after the service, so you're safe. But I want to explain to you what he's talking about here. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. So the first common misconception Paul addresses is that, that we're not safe just by knowing God's truth. Just because we have it, we have Bibles, we have these truths, sometimes we think, oh, I'm safe, I'm a Christian, I'm good to go. And Paul's saying, uh-uh. It raises a standard of judgment for you as opposed to lowering it. Now the second thing he's addressing here is this idea that I'm not safe simply practicing some of God's truth. So you can say the next person is, hey, I, I have these truths. The next person is one who just practices some of them, does some religious things that God tells us to do. And he's saying that doesn't make you safe. For the Jewish person, circumcision was the sign that they were part of God's people physically. It was a sign that pointed towards God's later promise. And you have to understand a little bit about covenants in that sign to understand what Paul's getting at here. Circumcision, I won't go into too much detail. I don't think you want to, but he talks about it here. Circumcision, the word means to cut off. In a sense, it means to cut around and cut off. And for a male Israelite Jew, part of their foreskin was cut off and taken off. And it was to point toward the coming physical Messiah that was going to come through them, the Savior that was to come. And that was a sign of that covenant. And in the cutting off, that's what a covenant meant. It meant to cut off. And if you remember the covenant God made with Abraham, he cut the animals in half and God went through them, consuming them. And the idea of a covenant was, if I don't fulfill this covenant with you as they went through the ceremony, then I myself will become like these animals that we cut off, that we cut in half. I'm banking my life on this, is what God is saying in a covenant. And circumcision was a cutting off that reminded every one of those males that that one Savior that was coming could come through their line. And now God's saying, that ceremony does nothing to save you. You can go through these outward ceremonies and miss the heart of what was being meant. And we do this all the time. We use God's truth in a, set, in a sense to be our own savior on our terms. And, and the Israelites were doing that too. They actually believed that as long as a, a man, a male was circumcised, it didn't matter what he did, he was guaranteed to be saved. God would never cast him aside. And Paul's saying here, it's not this outward ceremony that saves you. That's a reminder of something that was coming, a promise that you had to hope in for your salvation. We do the same thing, people. Whether it be baptism, or, or maybe we make a donation, or going to church, or whatever it might be, we keep doing the wrong that we have, and we keep clinging to the idols that are in our hearts, and we just think, I'm just going to get baptized. That'll, that'll get me there. 
I'm just gonna, I'll, make, I'll make a donation. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. I blew it again. Let me just make a donation, or let me just go to church every, every Sunday this week. And we think these religious practices make us safe, and they don't. That's not where we need to change. It's not to say that those things are wrong. Paul's saying that both can be good, but it's where it starts from that's the point. And the point Paul's making should cause Christians in these passages to be the least judgmental towards those apart from God because as we see God's law, as we embrace God's law and we get familiar with it, all we see more and more is how far short we fall. So simply practicing these things doesn't save us, doesn't make us safe. Paul alludes to what does, and he's not giving it away here. Obviously, they would have read this letter as a whole, and so we're giving away the punchline each week, but I want to just take you to it in verse 29 as he closes this out. He says this, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit not by the letter, meaning it's not something that we do. Even as we perform these ceremonies here, it, this, it, baptism doesn't save us. Worshiping doesn't save you. All these things are a response to what's already taken place in your heart by the Spirit. Paul's saying that here. And he says, when that's the case, this Jew, this one inwardly, this religious person who's one inwardly, and he's out Outward things are just signs of what's taken inwardly or taken place inwardly in them. It says his praise, this type of person's praise, is not from man, but from God. Here's my final point, and, and here's the hope that we have and we see this, these truths. As I will be praised by God when I trust in Jesus Christ's judgment for sin. I will be praised by God when I trust in Jesus Christ's judgment for sin. See, we, we need to be changed on the inside. And just as Paul talked about here, circumcision was a sign for God's people who were associated with the promises he gave to Abraham. And, and this idea of circumcision meaning to cut off, it was to cut off a portion of the flesh while preserving the rest. What was cut off died, what remained lived. And it pointed toward a future circumcision that was coming that would take care of this issue for you and me. I want you to read with me in Colossians 2, verses 11 and following. And I, I put this up in the New Living Translation because it words it very, uh, just clearly and simply. It doesn't need as much explanation. And it just says this. It says, when you came to Christ, you were circumcised not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision. That's what Paul was talking about, the circumcision of a heart, the cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized. And with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. It says, you came to Christ, you were circumcised 
not by a physical procedure, but Christ performed this procedure. You see, Jesus Christ, as this passage reveals, became for us what Paul is revealing could never happen in our own merit. He became that circumcision. He was the one who was cut off. He shouldn't have been. He came, he took on human flesh, and he lived amongst you and I. He was the only one, as Paul describes here, who was a Jew inwardly. He was the only one who from the heart perfectly obeyed everything that God commanded. He perfectly obeyed God's law from the heart and externally. And then instead chose to be cut off from God when God heaped our sin upon him. He cut him off. And circumcision cuts off what must die so that what remains might live. He died. He was cut off so that you and I, who deserve to be cut off, might live. And when you trust in that judgment, when you trust that he was judged for you and me, his judgment was mine, that that horrific experience that he went through, when you associate yourself with the cross, when you, instead of looking at the world and thinking that the world deserved that, when you humbly go, wow, I should have received that. Regardless of what kind of home I came up in, regardless of the morality of my past life, whatever I think I merit, I deserve what Jesus took. And when we realize that he did that for you and for me, that he was cut off. The Spirit of God begins to change your heart. He begins to open your eyes. And your obedience, your desire to have his word, your desire to obey him outwardly has nothing to do with you measuring up. Because you never would. It has everything to do with the fact that God reached out into a sin-filled world and grabbed the worst of sinners like you and me and positioned us, adopted us as his son and daughter. He said, Chad, what you deserved, I gave it to my son. I cut him off. And when he rose again, it shows that his life was sufficient that he did that for you. And now you stand as secure as my own son stands with me. Not because you're a good person, but because my grace is sufficient for you. You see, when you trust that, when you believe that Jesus did that for you, God transforms us. He changes us from the inside Imagine a church that saw its mission to lead others into a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ and his church through this lens. It wouldn't be a church that thought, I'm going to go out and judge everyone I possibly can in my community. It would be a church, it would be a people who in humble gratitude pursue his truth, pursue him, 
And they'll be the first to say, man, I understand why you struggle with lust. Man, I know what it's like to deal with greed. I can see why you cheat. I can see why you're trying to get ahead in this world. Because I do the same thing and I know better. But can I tell you about one who freed me from my slavery to sexual lust, to my need for acceptance, my need for, for approval, my need for money or whatever it was. Can I tell you about one who freed me from it? even though I still struggle with it. Man, that's someone that people are going to want to listen to. That's someone who, when they're honest, when they reflect in their own hearts, when God begins to work in them, they're going to realize that they don't even meet their own standard. And instead of God's name being blasphemed because of our behavior, His name will be praised. It will be praised from us, and it'll be, be praised from those who come to see the Lord Jesus through our brokenness and through our transformation. That can be this church. When we allow these truths to shape how we think, to shape our hearts, and to transform 